In the book of Habakkuk, and believe it or not, there is a book in the Bible called Habakkuk. Say that three times fast and you'll spit on somebody. It says this in chapter 2, verse 2, Write the vision and make it plain that he may run who reads it. And what that is referring to is the fact that God intends for us to live our lives on purpose. We have only one life to live and, and God did not mean for it to be just getting through the day. He meant for, it, for us to live life on purpose with meaning, with vision, in pursuit of something that he has called us to. In fact, the Bible also says in another place that without a vision, people perish. And that doesn't mean they die. It means that the, the word that's translated as perish there means that uh, they become adrift. Like a, a, a ship that's been tied to moorings so that it's anchored to a certain uh, place. But when you uh, let those ropes go the ship is just adrift to wherever the winds and waves will take it. And the Bible does, uh, makes it clear that God does not want us to live our lives like that, just to drift on the sea, just wherever the winds and waves take, it, take us. He means for us to live on purpose or to borrow a phrase from the Blues Brothers. He meant for us to be on a mission for God. And nothing else satisfies, no other way of living is, is, can co even come close to uh, answering the cry of every human heart for meaning. Now this is also true for churches. God did not meant for, mean for his church, any local body of Christ, to be just adrift, just doing stuff called church, having meetings and, you know, conducting, uh, you know, events and things like that. As, as nice and as, as great as all that may be, that's not God's intent. He meant for his church to be on mission, to be uh, uh, fulfilling his purpose. And so this church is meant to be uh, fulfilling a vision. Now vision has to do more with what we're becoming than what we do. And today, beginning today, and then for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about the vision that God has given this local congregation. Now, I, every, uh, in my intention is that every 18 months so we come back to talking about this because I've discovered as a pastor for nearly 40 years that vision leaks. And what I mean by that is we all get caught up in lots of stuff that we're doing in life and somehow the, our, the grip that we had on the calling that God has for our individual lives and for our lives together as a church congregation tends to kind of loosen a bit. And so every now and again we need to re-grab hold of that. And today we're beginning uh, that process all over again. And uh, I don't expect you to remember these things. This is not important. This is our vision statement. But that's all it is, is just a statement to try to capture something that's far deeper than that. Something that's scriptural. Something that God has spoken to us. So you may, be, you may work for a company like I did uh, many years where... You know, you have to wear a badge around your neck that has the company vision statement on it as well as, you know, your, um, your 
passcode to get into different parts of the facility and all that stuff. And uh, I know I my badge. I had to have a vi I had to have my you know my picture, my name on my badge, and then I had behind that I had the vision statement. Then behind that I had the purpose statement, and then behind that I had some other statement that I can't even think of right now. And pretty soon it just feels like a weight around your neck, right? So I'm not here today to talk about this in terms of something that you need to remember, but to capture. Let's get a hold again of these things. Because even though we revisit these things every 18 months or so, this will be my last time to share these things with you. And it's my desire that I not be, that Sue and I not be, the only ones who keep the flame. That this is something that we all recognize as part of our DNA together. And that whether or not I can or, or you can repeat the, the statement, we know what we're about and we're in pursuit of these things together. All right? Yes. All right? Man, that scared me there for a minute. Yeah, maybe that's what I should have said. I. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, now I know what you're talking about. <laughs> God has called us, Crossroads, this church, to become. And by the way, we're not here yet. And thankfully, um, God has been in graciously and mercifully in the process of helping us become, but he always will be at work in us. We're never going to arrive at these, things, at these things, but we want to be in pursuit of them. We believe that God has called us to be a comfortable place to seek, a dynamic place to worship, a caring place to heal, a solid place to grow, and a joyful place to serve. And these five words, comfortable, dynamic, caring, solid, and joyful, um, they are all, in my opinion, things that should characterize every church. But there are unique ways that God is applying these five words to this church. And over these weeks, we're going to talk about what, how these descriptive terms need to be lived out among us and in our context. Now it's my desire, and of course this will never happen, this is just, I don't know, I just made this up in my head, but at some, at some point, when, it, when everything ends, and they, they put a tombstone out there on Cordelia Road for Crossroads Church, I, I hope that it says, here lies a people who were comfortable, dynamic, caring, solid, and joyful. Let's be people who are in pursuit of these things. And so today we're going to talk about the first of these five things that God has called us to become a comfortable place to seek. And that's why I asked you to turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to start reading at verse 22. Just follow along with me. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill. It's a location in the city of Athens. And he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, 
nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, quote, for we also are also his offspring, end quote. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom by the man, excuse me, whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, uh, "We will hear you again on this matter." So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Over these weeks that uh, we'll be talking about vision, we're going to be exploring some of the foundational passages of Scripture that root who we believe God has called us to be as a church, and this is one. Because this describes how God, I believe, wants for us to conduct business as a comfortable place to seek. Paul was invited, he, he was visiting the city of Athens and he was waiting on his traveling companions to catch up with him and while he was there he was roaming around town like you might do if you were visiting a city for the first time and taking in the sights. And he noticed that everywhere he went there were uh, temples and altars to uh, to uh, establish for the worship of false gods. And um, unless you think that this was just something that happened in Athens, Greece, in the uh, first century, think again. Because whatever town you're from, the same thing is true there. Whether it's Vallejo, Benicia, Vacaville, uh, American Canyon, Susun City, um, Oakland, wherever you might be from today, people are worshiping. And for the most part, they're worshiping false gods. Now, not long ago, Sue and I were traveling back from the Oakland airport to our home uh, in Vallejo and passed by one of those uh, altars, one of those temples to the worship of, of a false god that's been erected in the city of Oakland. It's called Oracle Arena. And I'm a, I'm a sports uh, fan. I, I enjoy basketball as much as the next guy. But you can take it too far, can't you? People, people sacrifice lots of money, time, emotion in that house of worship called Oracle Arena. I don't want, I don't want you to think twice about going there to watch a game now but I'm just saying that let's be mindful of the fact that this is a very real issue for everybody what is the thing that gets your attention 
What is the thing you get enthused about above all others? What is the thing you give your money and your time and your emotion to? Likely a false god. If that isn't going, if, it, if that isn't directed to the true and living God. A couple of years ago, Sue and I and our pastoral staff attended our denomination's national, national conference down in Anaheim across the street from one of those uh, temples that have been erected to a false god. The false god of family and entertainment is called Disneyland. Now Disneyland was uh, built or, or opened the year I was born, 1955. Yes, that's how old I am. Anyway, uh, and so I have been joined to, to the, uh, at the hip with Disneyland my whole life. I love going there. I love going there. In fact, I've made many trips to uh, Walt Disney World on the other side of the country because I, I like all things Disney. But that, I got to be careful that that doesn't become the worship of a false god. So he's wandering around the city and noticing that people worship and people are worshiping everything, including they, they had a, an altar to the unknown God, just in case they missed one. You know, an altar to the miscellaneous God, the all-purpose God, you know. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because when he comes, when he was invited to come to Mars Hill, which was a place where people just gathered to debate, you know, politics and philosophy and religion and stuff. That's what went on there all day, every day. When he was invited there to come and to talk about uh, Christ, his Christian faith or his faith in Jesus, this one who died and rose from the dead, he didn't do what I think a lot of us would expect a preacher to do given that kind of an audience. I think most of us would expect that a preacher, would, given that opportunity, would have the obligation to stand up there and point out the wickedness and the sin of these idolaters. You would expect Paul, I think many of us would expect Paul in this remarkable occasion when he has the opportunity to speak to these heathen people, to stand there and tell them, you stinking idolaters, you need to get saved and repent of your sin. But he, he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I perceive that you are all very religious. And even though that's kind of an indictment, kind of a, a pointing them to their sin, he does it in a very friendly way. And one of the things that, we'll, that we need to keep in mind always as a church that wants to be a comfortable place to seek is that we need to represent God in this world as, his, as the friendly face of God. Look, it's not my job to convince people of their sin. In fact, when I try to do it, all that happens is they feel guilty and, they, and it drives them from God. It repels them from God. When that guy gets out on the street corner with his bullhorn and tells everybody to turn or burn, he's not helping the cause of the gospel. Because our job is not to... Whose job is it to convict of sin? The Holy Spirit. And he's really good at it. 
He knows how in this amazing way the Holy Spirit can cause us to be convicted of our sin and the darkness of our evil, but at the same time so convinced of the love of God that we are drawn to him for forgiveness, not away from him. And so Paul represents the friendly face of God to those people. Years ago when I was uh, bivocational uh, planting a church in Silicon Valley, I was trying to uh, start and pastor a church at the same time I was working in the, in a, in the tech industry as an accountant. And one day uh, my manager came to me and said, I hear you're kind of a preacher person. And I said, well, uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of true. And she says, well, uh, my boyfriend and I, we've been living together for 10 years and we think it's about time for us to get married. Would you perform the ceremony? We don't know anybody else who could do it. And it caught me by surprise because up to that point, I had had a rule that I would never perform a wedding for anybody that wasn't in my church so that I could, um, you know, take care of them over the course of their, their relationship. And I could ensure that, they, that God was, you know, a part of, the major part in that relationship. And so this was like a challenge for me that she posed. And God, but, but, but I felt God pressing me to say yes. And so I did. I said, yeah, but I need four hours of counseling with you and your boyfriend. Is that okay? She said, yeah, sure. And I, so I got the opportunity to talk to them about God. I got the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Now, I don't know if they ever received Jesus as their Savior, although we've recently reconnected uh, on Facebook, and I've seen some things that, might, that lead me to believe they may have. But I don't know, and they certainly didn't, it didn't appear that way to me at the time. But what I do know is on the day of their wedding, when I stood up there in front of all these people who were total pagans, man, they didn't, none of them had any idea at all about God, <laughs> And I'm standing there, the friendly face of God. They had the chance to be in, in, the, uh, in a place where there was a guy who confessed faith in Jesus Christ without a bullhorn. And I know that was meaningful to them because lots of them said so after the service. Where that led in terms of their faith journey, that's up to God. But I believe that that's one of the assignments of this church, to be friendly. The next thing that we see here, in my view, that's important to take note of is that Paul, <clears throat> he, he drew their attention, when he was preparing to preach the gospel to them, he drew their attention to things they were familiar with. He said, hey, you know what, I was wandering around town and I noticed that there was this altar to the unknown God. I'm sure you've all seen it, right? And they had. And then later in verse 28, he says, he says, and you know what, even one of your own poets said this, and then he quotes that poet. He was pointing them to things that were familiar so that he could introduce things that were unfamiliar. He wanted to tell them about Jesus Christ, the one who died for their sins and rose from the dead. But bridging that gap involved him helping them to understand that, th that there were some things in their own world that pointed them in that direction. 
And this is important for us to never forget. I was not raised uh, as a Roman Catholic. I was raised as a Protestant. And uh, so I don't, I, I, I don't have Roman Catholicism in my background. Many of you do, and that's, that's great. The point is, whenever I walk into a Catholic church, I haven't the slightest idea what to do. I don't know when to cross myself. I don't even know how to cross myself. I don't know when to stand. I don't know when to kneel. People stand up and they say things and I don't know where, how do they know what to say? How do they even know when to say it? I'm just lost. And you know what? Nearly every person who walks through those doors right there for the first time to be with us feel exactly the same way. We make you stand up for a half an hour and sing songs you never heard in your life. How weird is that? And then we send a basket around that we don't warn you about it and you say, oh, am I supposed to give money? How much? Do you take credit cards? I mean, it's crazy some of the things that we do in church. And, well, I, I say crazy. It's meaningful and, and hopefully Bible-based and so on. But most people, they don't get that first go-round, right? So Paul was in that same kind of situation, and he was, but he was building a bridge. And it's our desire, look guys, let's never lose sight of the fact that we don't want to become so weird that no one gets in. Okay? Now, you know, there are Christians who would have been ticked off at Paul that he even knew, that he'd even read their poet, let alone quote him. It's like me one time I was preaching along and I said, and yeah, like that, like that uh, well-known prophet Mick Jagger who said, you can't get no satisfaction. And I'm sure I gave some people some heart attacks that day. You know, spiritually mature people that were mad at me. Look, I, I have very little in common with, and you know what? Most of you probably don't even know who Mick Jagger is. <laughs> but some of us of a certain age kind of do. And we, yeah, anyway. I was, I was doing something similar. I was saying, in, in all of this stuff that's unfamiliar, I said something that might be familiar to somebody. And they could say, oh, well, I, I at least understood that. Right? So we don't want to become so strange and so weird that we're, we're driving people away. We want to, and I don't mean, and I'll say this again in a minute, I don't mean that we need to become worldly. I don't mean that we need to be to soft pedal the gospel or water it down in any way. But let's just be normal. Let's just be real. Let's just realize that, you know, people are, they're searching. And we need to help them in, along that search. And that brings me to the next thing. Because Paul said here, he said, you know what? God set this up in verses 26 and 27. He said, God set this whole thing up. He created the world. He, he, he set up the, the nations and the length of time they get to exist. It's like he, he set up the whole stage. And then he tells us why. He says, so that they might grope for me and find me. And I believe the Lord would have us to be as a comfortable place to seek, to be people who are relevant. That means we are scratching where people actually itch. 
so that. That means the things that we talk about have, have meaning to their lives from a biblical perspective, from a godly perspective, so that they have the environment within which to grope after God and find him. That's what Paul said God set this all up for. And then I come back to what I just said a minute ago. This is not about, and sometimes people think that when I mention this stuff about being a comfortable place to seek, I'm talking about somehow watering down the gospel or, or making uh, things so simplistic that there's no, for, for people who are spiritually mature, there's no meat there. You know what I'm saying? And that's not the case at all. In fact, when Paul goes, read his sermon here. It's about as deep as you can get, and he talks about the resurrection. It doesn't get more challenging than that. That's as deep and as spiritually mature as you get to gnaw on the fact that somebody who was dead rose from the grave. I don't think that we have to soft sell anything. I don't think we need to water down anything. The unadulterated, straightforward, powerful, good news, gospel of Jesus Christ is what every one of us needs. So being friendly, familiar, and relevant doesn't mean we can't be substantive. And I think you'll, you'll bear witness to the fact that when I get up here week after week, I'm not... I'm not engaged in nursery rhymes. You know, we're dealing with the scripture in all of its everything. But we can do it in a way that's friendly, familiar, and relevant. Amen? Finally, Paul said, look, in verse 30, he said, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. One thing we cannot lose sight of is that there comes a decision point. Let's be clear about that. That just hanging around with Christian people is not enough. Singing worship songs, not enough. Going through the motions of Christianity, not enough. At some point, you must stare down your sin that separates you from God and repent of it. And give your life to him. Clear enough? Let's preach that gospel. Day in, day out, week in, week out. Even after Sue and I retire. Amen? Amen. Let's be a church. Let's be a congregation who lives out these things as a comfortable place to seek. This is recording number 11260 from the Teaching Ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, May 21, 2017. This is the first message in a series titled, Our Vision. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, A Comfortable Place to Seek.